Good morning, everybody. Good morning to you, John. Uh, today's verses will be in uh, Genesis 13, 1 through 18, but I will only be reading verses 1 through 4 um, under the lesser's request. Um, Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went, Abram went up from Egypt to the, to the Negev, and he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and, and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. These are the very words of God. Blessed be the words of God. We remember last week the presumptuous patriarch. We remember how Although Abram took he and his family and went into Egypt to escape a famine, that he took it upon himself to lie about the state of his wife, that she was, instead of saying it, she was his wife, that she was his sister. We know that the plague struck Pharaoh because of this, and we also know that Pharaoh said, you must leave this land. And it says, and he took everything with him. All that belonged to Abram came with him. Everything, including what Pharaoh had gifted him, came with him. And he left. It says in verse 13, as our introduction, that Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He returned to the place where this journey into Egypt started, which would have been Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. Now I'm going to stop right there and say that we have a few things that we will learn in these, this, these passages through verse 18. It may feel like a whirlwind journey through that since there are a number of verses. We will see and talk about Abram's return to the land of the promise. We will talk about the land where, where Abram believes what the Lord is telling him. And then we will see the promise that Abram will trust in, in these passages. But the return to the Negev, the presumptuous patriarch. We could almost say that his returning to the land where he came from after lying about his situation is almost like a physical representation of what repentance looks like. He is turning away from the manner in which he first moved into Egypt and lied about his wife, and now he's returning to that land where the Lord had given it to him. 
The Lord has been gracious with Abram, even though he has made mistakes. It says that he went back to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. We could almost think to ourselves this concept here of Lot with him too seems a little bit strange that it's pointed out that Lot is separated out from all that belonged to him with him and his wife and Lot with him. It somewhat feels bolted on. But we must remember especially here in Genesis, we get a lot of contrasts between the redemptive line and the curse line. We see similar things with Isaac and Ishmael or Jacob and Esau too. Lot is pointed out. There's something different about Lot. And the Lord, when He gives these words to Moses to write down, wants us to know this. He wants us to see that there's something different about Lot's line than there is about Abram's line. It is that contrast. We certainly know that we find out in Genesis chapter 19 that Lot's daughters will have an incestuous relationship with him. And they will birth what will be the Moabite nation and the Ammonite nation. Those nations will be problematic for the Israelites moving forward. So we can certainly say that we see Abram, we know he's the line of the promise. And we can see Lot, which after chapter 19, we won't hear any more about Lot himself. It says in verse 2, as we just continue a little bit further, it says, now Abram was very rich in livestock and in silver and gold. Notice that his temporal blessings... His material goods are not a hindrance to the promise for him. It mentions that Abram has these things, but as we will see with Abram, he is not worshiping the things that he has. He has been blessed to have all these things as the father of what will be a great nation, we'll see here, but they're not prevailing over him in the place of the Lord. He did not need to abandon his riches as he returned to Canaan. We can gather from this that the promise was in focus now for Abram, even though he had a hiccup with his lying, that he's returned to the land that the Lord says, this will be yours. Even though he had that hiccup, he's returned and it doesn't, and it's, and when he says there, when God tells us that he had very much in, with regard to the livestock and silver and gold, that this was not seen as a hindrance to him. Although it is not part of my message, rich or poor doesn't gain you anything in the sight of God. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you're favored by God. And just because you're rich doesn't mean you're cursed by God. Remember, it's God's choice. God has chosen Abram as the father of the nation. 
which will be the father of the nation of Israel. And it says that he was very rich in livestock and in silver and gold. He moves back into the area of the Negev with no interference from his material blessings. Remember, we see this as a returning to the promise. He's gone to Egypt, sojourned shortly, got caught in a lie. His witness was marred because of the lie that he did. And now he's returning to the land that the Lord gave him, to Canaan. It says in verse 3, it says, he went on his journeys from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai. We see that it's almost like a reset that he's doing. Some mistakes were made. The Lord dealt with me gently. He dealt with me graciously. I've gone back to where he gave me, gave the land to me at the promise. I'm returning the whole way there. And it says in verse, uh, excuse me, it says in verse four, to the place where the altar which had been made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. We remember when he put that altar there in a pagan land that he built a place of worship to the Lord. And now it says that he called upon the name of the Lord. This journey has taken him back to the last place of worship to God. The last place of worship to Yahweh. And what does he do? It says he goes back there. He leaves from Egypt. He takes everything with him, including Lot. And he goes to the place where he built the altar in that pagan woodlot, as we recall, at the area where they would a pagan worship, and he's built an altar, and it says he called upon the name of the Lord. We want to remember last week when Abram did his things in Egypt, he did not call upon the name of the Lord. He lied out of presumptuousness, he lied to Pharaoh about the state of his wife. He was handling it under his own power and hoping for blessing afterwards. Now we know how that works out in our own lives. right? We'll do something that may or may not be in the purview of God without consulting the Scripture, without going to the Scripture in prayer, and then we'll hope that the Lord blesses it later on. Well, mistakes were made in Egypt. He returns to that place where he, where he worshipped the Lord at that altar between Bethel and Ai. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He worships the Lord. Even though his hand had been stayed gently in Egypt, lessons were learned. He's learning to proceed rightly with the Lord. Remember, he does not have a Bible. He does not have the Scripture. 
He had the voice of the Lord. He had a vision of the Lord and a voice of the Lord. But he has no book. So I love that song by faith. Right? That's what he had. What he has. But he had the promise. He had the promise that was given to him. And then here we get another bolted on phrase about that seems to us in verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. You're kind of left with this verse of why is it there? Yeah, we get it. We know Lot is with him. We know that Lot left a long time ago with him. We know that Lot sojourned with him in Egypt. And again, the Lord is telling us that Lot was with him and Lot had flocks and herds and tents. Lot was not poor. Lot was not destitute. In fact, Lot was well cared for also. So we'll be thinking about Lot in a moment. About what this all means. So we just kind of walking through the text and trying to get to where we are going with this, right? So if we were to say, again, in the beginning, we see right here up until verse 5, return to the land. Return to the area which God had given Abram. He has turned around and come back to where God told him to be. He has then called upon the Lord. The, I'm calling upon the Lord. I need instruction. Perhaps we could say, I tried to do it my own way, and that didn't work out so well. Now I'm calling upon the Lord. I went to the place of worship. I called upon the name of the Lord. And then we have verse 6. And now we're going to talk about the land where he's come back to. This is the area where he learns to believe the instruction of God. He learns to, he's learning or coming in to know uh, uh, positively about what God is telling him. About what he should do. How he should be and trust in the Lord. In verse 6 it says, And the land could not, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Pezzarite were dwelling then in the land. So just go to that last section first. So they're still in a pagan land. They're still pagan people. But they have been well blessed, both Abram and Lot. They have a lot of flocks, a lot of material goods. And there's only a limited amount of resources where they're at. It's an issue. This land between Bethel and Ai, where they're at, they've run out of resources, they have run out of those things to sustain everything there. And naturally, that competition between the herdsmen, between the two groups of people, is coming to a head. It's a problem. So Abram says in verse 8, he says in verse 8, so Abram said, now remember, he had called upon the name of the Lord. 
we understand that is hearing from God. Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and then in verse 8 it says, So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, between uncle and nephew, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. They are certainly brothers in blood. We remember that Acts 17.26, that all men come from one blood. And he says in 9, Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. The choice is yours, Lot. Maybe Abram doesn't fully understand the promise. He was certainly within his rights to take whatever he wanted because he was the elder. He was the leader. But he says, you choose. You look. You see. Whatever it is that you want, I will go the opposite direction. We understand the instruction from the Lord then would be, this would be in line with what God desires Abram to do. And we always remember that God is going to bring about His promises exactly in the manner in which He wishes them to come about. I don't think it would be wise to push this passage as far as Philippians 2, putting others ahead of ourselves. Although we can certainly see that same idea that Paul gives us in Philippians 2, put others ahead of yourself. Abram certainly is doing that here. You look, you pick. You go first. Take whatever it is you want. We could say that Abram certainly has learned a lesson from going under his own desires when he told the lie to Pharaoh that he is proceeding in a more correct path, calling upon the name of the Lord first before he does anything. In verse 10, 11, 12, and 13, we have these words. Lot lifted up his eyes, saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar, in other words, these are fertile plains, verdant fields with green, obviously lush with its idea, with the idea that it would support the herds that Lot has. It would be easy living if I take this land. So Lot chose, verse 11, chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. And thus they separated from each other. You will frequently see in Scripture this journey eastward is a negative thing. This journey eastward is representative away from God. We see it right here. Because remember, Lot is heading the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right?
Thus they separated from each other. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. I just cannot... Again, we have this city issue. One more time. We have consistently run into city issues throughout the Scripture of people settling in cities when God tells them not to settle in cities. That He, a lot, has looked with His eyes and chosen with His eyes. That's what we're seeing here. There is no relying upon, calling upon the name of the Lord for Lot's decisions. There is only seeing what is appealing to my eyes. And that's what I'm going after. And look at those cities. I like those too. Let's go there. He's choosing what he desires. And we remember the exact opposite is that Abram went to the altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. And you choose first, Lot. Whatever you want. I'll go the opposite direction. And Lot moved his tents as far as Sodom. And then we get this little teaser that's in there in verse 13, this little foreshadowing that we see there for something that's coming later on for us. Verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So this eastward trajectory has taken Lot away from the Lord. It should not be surprising them when we run into chapter 19 in a few months, or a month or two, when we run into chapter 19 that we're going to see the incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters. It says right where they're at that that they moved to an area where the men were I love how it's worded in the NASB. Wicked exceedingly. And the sinner and sinners against the Lord. He has chosen exactly the opposite of calling on the name of the Lord. Whereas Abram is believing in what the Lord has said, Lot is going his own direction. Now, we just want to remember, Lot's familiar with what happened because of the lie that Abram told. Yet he's still going his own ways. He has looked with his eyes, and I see that that looks great over there. I'm just going to go for it. I would challenge you to say, I would challenge you, everybody here today, that I am certain that you have done that in your own life. Even as a Christ follower, you have sought after things that your eyes found as desiring, and you've paid the price because of it. He looks, he sees, that's his main way of decision making. His eyes have revealed what he desires. I have these these giant flocks. I need giant fields. They can't be an empty desert wasteland. I need something to feed the flocks. This looks good. I'm going to take that. From the view on a promontory point looking out over there, this looks great. This looks bad. I'm taking the good. And it's on the east-hand side. The cities look pretty good too. looks like a good time. 
That's where I'm going to go. I'm certain that Lot was aware of the promise that the Lord had made to Abram. Yet, the area of the promise didn't look good to him. What the Lord said should be didn't look good to Lot. Sometimes from the outside looking in for for a for a non-Christ follower looking at us, it might not look too appealing to them. Do not fall under the trap of trying to make it appealing to them. When you're giving the gospel, tell them the cost. I specifically remember a young Muslim lady I told that to one day. I said, I will gladly talk about this, the gospel, all you want. But you've told me what your family is like, and it will cost you everything. Right? Don't make it appealing. Don't try to spray paint it. Don't try to put bangles and baubles on it to say, oh, look, come in. The coffee's great. All those sorts of things. It, that isn't the gospel. That isn't the good news. The good news is that I would say right now, in case I die in the next two minutes, Christ Christ took upon Himself God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. That if we see Him as Lord and say we know Him as Lord and Savior, that we will be clothed in His righteousness. We will then, when we die in this life, be transitioned into the next life, into that glorious ever after with Him. But Lot, He knew the promises. He chose what appealed to the eyes. He chose what appealed to the eyes. Psalm 119.37 says, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Man, I I, I really think Abram could have written that himself. We certainly know the the man in our Gospels. He says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. We can almost envision Abram saying that same thing when he calls upon the name of the Lord. Lord, help me with my... I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Help me to trust. Help me to know what you're doing. Don't let me be pulled away by what looks appealing to my eyes. I have a whole family history up until the 13th chapter of people looking with their eyes and choosing poorly right from the get-go. 13 chapters into Genesis and it happens almost on every single page, multiple times, people choosing against the Lord with what looks appealing to their eyes. And Lot does it again. Proverbs 6.25 tells us, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. We see this microcosm of what has happened before. Up until this point. We've seen it happen with Cain. We've seen it happen with uh, the Tower of Babel or the City of Babel. 
that desire for what seems to be best in our own eyes, forgetting that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all understanding. And these things are here that God has graciously allowed us to have in His Word to contrast between the promise of redemption and the curse. Derek Kidner, a commentator, theologian, offers the following. Uh, This sequel for both men is instructive. Lot choosing the things that are seen found them corrupt and insecure, choosing selfishly. He was to grow ever more isolated and unloved. He went after those things of the eyes, the things that appealed to him, the things that appealed to the flesh. For a man of the flesh cannot seek after the Lord. And it will be his undoing. Now we run into verse 14. Now we get to the promise. And Abram Abram trusting in the promise. The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, now you, Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. That forever is in the Hebrew olam, which means everlastingly. Abram hearing from the Lord, not presupposing on the Lord. The Lord says to him, Yahweh says to him, lift your eyes, look on all points of the compass, this is what I am giving you. Your nephew has left, he has gone after the wicked ways over here in the east, but you look, this is all that I am giving you. This is all going to be yours. And your descendants, it is the forever promise You have called upon my name, and I have given you the instruction, and here I'm giving you some more. We haven't even got, we're literally only in the, 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 the giving of the promise from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and now drink it all in with your eyes what I'm giving you. What I am giving you is greater than anything that you could do on your own. My plans are further and farther than what you can imagine. And I'm graciously allowing you to be part of it, what I am doing. And God, Yahweh, is doing it all for His glory. Abram guarded his ways. He has learned... And he guarded his decisions by first seeking out the Lord. Abram sought the Lord and the Lord provided in this provision of the land. God is showing both his unchanging nature and his unbelievable grace. The misstep that Abram had in Egypt 
did not negate the promise that God made. God doesn't change His mind. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. The Lord God dealt graciously with Abram in this revelation that He's giving him. The vast scope that He's giving him. And here we see that contrast. Whereas Lot immediately chooses with what his eyes see, Abram waits upon the Lord and the Lord tells him what you will have. Lot went with the complete choice of his own, the the choice of his own desire, whereas Abram's choice was trusting, was given to him by the Lord, trusting in God's will. He is trusting in God with the promise. Covenantally, this will be the forever promise for the land, for for the nation of Israel. This will be the land where they are eventually restored. I would like you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. So it shall be, in verse 1, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, and you obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I commanded, command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. These are the things the Lord will do. He is the one who circumcises the heart. He is the one who fulfills the promise. In verse 16 it says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. 17. Arise and walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. For I will give it to you. I will give it to those people that worship me as God and Creator. The ones that are not idolaters. The ones that don't seek out the pagan ways. These are the ones that I am giving you. This is the exact opposite of Sodom and Gomorrah. I am giving you this land for my people. For that what I desire, what God desires is a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Ones that are set apart. This is the promise, Abram. 
there will be quite a variety of descendants from your seed. Some will not be worshipers of God, but there will be worshipers of God. Romans 9, 6 tells us, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. We would trust in the promises as Abram is learning to do. He is trusting in the promise that will lead to the promised seed of salvation, which is Christ Jesus. That redemptive promise. And then it says in verse 18, Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. An altar of worship. An altar honoring God. A flag planted in a pagan land for God worship. Abram would move to an area that is 20 miles south of Bethlehem. It would also be the area where he would buy his only piece of land. And that piece of land was for his burial cave. Genesis 23.16 The fact that the text mentions the tent and the altar show a manner of life in which Abram lives. The tent would represent the ephemeral nature of our lives here. While the altar represents the permanency and the everlasting promises of the Lord. The necessity of the worship of our God. So, you can say interesting narrative. Fascinating story, maybe. But what does it mean for me today, some, uh, some 3,000 years in the future, we anticipate that this would, these events occurred somewhere around 2000 B.C., so we are definitely related, or definitely removed by time and generationally, and also geographically from this. We could sum it up, or I could say, repenting, believing, trusting. I'm comfortable with that based on this, based on this narrative. Abram turned and returned. He believed, he trusted. Repenting, believing, trusting. So we looked at these narratives and say, how does this narrative tell me? How does it point to? How does it help me understand the coming of the Messiah, the promise made in Genesis 3.15? In what manner does it talk about the redemptive plan of our triune God? Because if we don't look at it with that, we get mired in endless genealogies and myths which the Scripture warns us about. 1 Timothy 1.4 Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. We rest on that promise of Genesis 3.15 that He will correct the sin issue. So how does this narrative relate to the sin issue? 
How does it relate to the coming Messiah? How does it relate to my Lord and Savior? Repent, believe, trust. Repent, believe, trust. Galatians 3.16 tells us, Now the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. That is Christ. What does Jesus tell us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Maybe it's an unpopular opinion if you're on the, a little bit on the inside of some church circles. The word revival is being thrown around a lot. Which is awesome. I think it'd be great if there is a revival. But revival does not occur without repentance. Revival does not occur without repentance or or the word of the Lord being preached. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's one of the big lessons for us. We must not be caught up in the sin of doubt either. Romans 14.23 But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So in other words, when we talk about this doubting, we must be confident in what the Lord is telling us to do. We must not be the presumptuous patriarch that we had last week, assuming God will bless what we're doing. We must be sure of what God is saying to do, and He says to repent and believe. Repent and believe as Jesus as Lord and Savior. We know that because the Scripture tells us that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's fully worthy of teaching, reproving, rebuking, correction, training in righteousness. We learn then to believe in the promises of God. Repent. Believe the promises of God. We believe in the word that He's given to us. We believe as Abram believed in what God was doing, that when God speaks to us, when we look in His word, we look up and we don't see a city or town or lives that are falling apart, but we see the redemptive work of God in His body of believers. We see the work that God is doing in redeeming all who are found in Jesus Christ. Consider the words of Joshua 23.14. As Joshua is, uh, is approaching the time when he will pass away, now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. You know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Repent and believe that this is true. And Joshua was looking to a time when it would all be made right. As our patriarchs were, as Moses was, as David was. And we have that more sure hope. That anchor of our soul that penetrates behind the veil. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. 
This hope, this hope that is Christ Jesus, we have an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. We are part of those that are found in Christ. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. But if some were broken off, some of the branches were broken off, and you, this is to the Gentiles, who believe and found in Jesus Christ, you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, and that is Christ Jesus Himself. These are the promises to Abram that see their redemption and fulfillment in Christ. We are the benefactors of that. We should then treat ourselves, those lives trusting in God's Word, like those who wander in tents. God has blessed us all in some direction. Some houses, apartments, condominiums might be bigger than others, but it is all a blessing from God. He has given us the Word that we can trust in, but we should not trust in the things. We trust in the Lord who provides. We trust in Him and His promises that will come true. We trust in that anchor that is anchored behind the veil that secures us in Him. We are not seeking our fulfillment here when we look up in our salvation, when we know the Lord and our Savior. We look around the compass and we don't, but we're not looking for a better country here. We're looking forward to that celestial city. We are looking forward to the city where Christ reigns. We are looking forward to being the one who can point to the Savior and say, that man said I could come here. That's what we look to. We look with great hope because we repented, we believe, and we're trusting. We then lay our faith in things of this world on that altar and sacrifice those away. Trusting in the Lord who saves not the things of this world, but saves us. We trust in Christ and Christ alone. And I've sent this to a few people this week, and I'll close with this quotation. I just It's just phenomenal. Uh, on his deathbed, a Scot, David Dixon, lived 1583 to 1662, wrote a significant commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, was asked by the friends gathered around him as he was dying what he was thinking, and he said these words, I have taken all my bad deeds and put them in a heap. And I have taken all my good deeds as well, and I have put them on the same heap. And I have run away from that heap into the arms of Jesus. I die in peace. It is my prayer today for you, my friends, brethren, family members, that you run to Jesus. That you repent and believe in Him as Lord and Savior. That you trust in the promises. That you know Him deeply, changingly, as your God, your King. Father God, thank You for Your Word. Uh, thank You for this day. 
Thank You for the testimony of people in the Scripture that testify to You. Those ones that have built the altar to You, that have called upon Your name, that have lifted their eyes and seen the promise that has been given to them. I can't help but think in this prayer time of thinking about Stephen as he was being stoned, he looked with his eyes and he saw the promise to be true as the Son of God, as Christ Himself standing next to you, Father, in heaven. We ask that we trust more in Your promises every day, that we rely on the Scripture that You have given us, that we are confident emissaries of Your Word, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Stand up, join us while we work.